This is episode 40 of Ripe Good Scholar, Eleanor Cobham's Witch Trial. But he would have books translated for her so they could both read them. That's really sweet. I know, right? They had an adorable marriage. It makes me really sad about what happens. What? No, don't go there. Just stop. Stop telling the story. Hi, this is Jeremy Dubin of the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company and co-host of The Good, The Bard, and The Ugly. And you are listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. It has been 580 years since Eleanor Cobham was tried and convicted of using witchcraft to predict the death of King Henry VI. This accusation would destroy her life and that of her husband, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. However, due to her high status and quick thinking, she was able to save her life and live out her days in relative splendor. In Shakespeare, Eleanor Cobham is a devious woman, reminiscent of Lady Macbeth. While she certainly was intelligent and quickly rose the ranks in society, there is no indication that Eleanor Cobham was anywhere close to a Lady Macbeth. Join us today as we look at the life and downfall of Eleanor Cobham. For this episode, I read Royal Witches by Gemma Holman. If you want to check out that book and so much more, head over to ripegoodscholar.com slash EP40. Now, let's head to 1441. So today we're going to be talking about Eleanor Cobham, the Duchess of Gloucester, who Shakespeareans will know from Henry VI Part 2. She was arrested and charged with witchcraft. Now, was that a felony at the time? Oh, she's lucky she wasn't killed. She wasn't killed? No. She was the second highest ranking woman in all of England, so no, she was not killed, but she suffered. It's just another Elizabeth Bathory situation. You, you can't you, you can't execute them high-ranking nobles. I mean, fair, but also Elizabeth Bathory, like, killed at least a couple hundred people, and Eleanor Cobham probably did nothing. Oh, so different. Yes, we won't jump straight into the witch trial because I think it helps to have some background on Eleanor's life and her rise to power. Eleanor Cobham, while born into the nobility, was not super high ranking. When she was born, if you had said she was going to be the second highest woman in the land, she probably would have been like, <laughs> you're funny. We tend to think of the English nobility as one big structure. But there were many ranks within the nobility. Yes. Uh, so her father, Reginald Cobham, was the third Baron of Sturborough. Just so many great names in this episode already. And the third Lord Col Cobham. <laughs> her mother, Eleanor Culpepper. Excellent. Was the daughter of a knight. Oh, so barely even noble. Her mother, yes. I mean, her father was at least a baron. 
and a lord. And I don't know. Sometime we're going to need to do a whole episode on the ranks of the nobility. I, I just watched a YouTube video on the ranks of the nobility for, you know, some behind the scenes on how we spend our time. <laughs> for fun. A baron is a, a lord. There's some sort of rank that's like a knight baron who is just a knight whose knighthood is, descends through his line. Interesting. I don't think he was, I don't know, he was just a baron. So her mother was the daughter of a knight. Okay. She wasn't a nobody, but she wasn't like... A somebody. She became a lady-in-waiting to Jacqueline de Henon. She was the Duke of Gloucester, Humphrey. She was his first wife. Remind me, this woman becomes the Duchess of Gloucester, yes? Yes. Jacqueline uh, was French. Shocker. I could not tell. It sounds Scottish to me. So it's hard because I'm not as familiar with French geography, but given her name, I'm assuming she's French. And she went to France at one point. Anyway, she was an heiress of some land and some titles. She was married to some other French noble who, upon her father's death or her uncle's death, I don't know, there was a struggle for power for Jacqueline's rightful inheritance. Interesting. So she fled to England, where she was given safety and married the Duke of Gloucester. Okay, so I'm guessing from context, because the Duke of Gloucester is such a high-ranking noble. He was the king's brother, yeah? He was Henry V's brother. Right. I don't know where in the timeline of the Henrys this happened. He was either regent over a baby king or the king's brother. I think he was regent over a baby king. And this was towards the end of the Hundred Years' War. So they were at war with the heir to the French throne. I think this means that her titles and lands probably were pretty important and worth the English playing politics over. Yes and no. Some of her territories were on the border with with one of the German princedoms. It wouldn't have been a huge boon for the English to get this land. Um, because this was in France, but like on the border, not like, I don't think the Dauphine was even that worried about it. Anyway, that's why I get confused about where she's from because it was like kind of Swiss, kind of French. So he decides that he's going to have his big victory by helping her conquer back her lands. Woo! And then doesn't. Yeah, that's uh, about the time the English were losing. Well, he also just like didn't send all the people he said he was going to send. Sounds about right. Her first marriage was declared valid by the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that her marriage to Gloucester was invalid, and he basically just abandoned her in France. <laughs> As you do. Who among us has not abandoned a wife in France? We'll talk about that later. During this time, Eleanor was one of his mistresses. I say one of because there's no evidence that the two of them ever had children. None of these children were ever recognized or legitimized or anything. He did have illegitimate children that we know of. And based on some of what happens later, they had no children. But basically, once his marriage to Jacqueline was declared invalid, he pretty much immediately married Eleanor. Oh, wow. It was a bit of a scandal. I would imagine so. Because one, she wasn't like a princess. I mean, he was the heir to the throne. He was the regent who controlled England. Well, yes, among others. There was like a whole, anyway, he gets in a power struggle with, um, I keep wanting to say Cardinal Wolsey, but I know that's not right. <laughs> He was really, he was 200 years old by the time he was executed. He was Cardinal Beaufort, a high ranking. They go on a power struggle for a little while. Gloucester didn't have sole power, but he was heir to the throne to a child king. 
given the death rate of children at the time. A lot of people wanted to be on his good side. Yes, because it was it was reasonably likely that he would become king at some point. Yeah, it was a bit of a scandal because she wasn't particularly high ranked. And also some of the women in the country frowned upon him abandoning his first wife in France and just being like, well, the Pope said it's not valid. Oh, well, <laughs> not even like bringing her back to England. Oh, wait, people frown on abandoning your wife in France? Well, at least the women of medieval England did. <laughs> well, one didn't, and that was enough. Humphrey and Eleanor got married in 1428. By all accounts, they really did love each other. Oh. There's no evidence or anything that he had any mistresses while he was with Eleanor. That's really rare for medieval England. Yes. They both shared a love of learning, so they built this extravagant home in Greenwich that they called La Plaisance. You have to remember most of the English nobility were still French. As opposed to now when most of them are German. So they built this extravagant home, and I mean, like, this was coming up to king level houses huge land all brick home no big bad wolf gonna blow that down nope and it was it had a pretty advantageous place it was on the river so it was pretty easy for him to get to london and back this is probably still around the time when uh, people were thinking about sieges when they uh, built their castle. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously he was in London a lot. He was regent. But they had their home and that was their mini court of poets and artists and scholars. It actually sounded pretty awesome. Not gonna lie. Yeah, that sounds sweet. He would have Latin books translated for Eleanor because she could read and probably write, but she wouldn't have learned Latin. She wasn't like noble enough and, and she was also a woman, so there was she never learned Latin. But he would have books translated for her so they could both read them. That's really sweet. I know, right? They had an adorable marriage. It makes me really sad about what happens. D what? No, don't go there. Just stop. Stop telling the story. They're, they're probably the most adorable couple we've covered so far. But as we get into what happens next, the build up to the witch trial, because like, they lived happily and powerfully for years. We're talking 13 years here of them happily married and building their home and being extremely powerful because all of this is happening when Henry VI is still in his minority. And I'm not talking about in Shakespeare, we see it like barely in his minority and he's getting married and like, now it's not time to have a region anymore. No, Margaret of Anjou is nowhere, nowhere in the picture. They, she never even met Eleanor. Okay. So this is basically like the, heir to the throne and regent over England has his own lavish court with his low-born wife and re really is the most powerful man in England. Hashtag power couple. And he and Eleanor were also pretty well loved. I know it was a bit of a scandal when they first got married, but Queen Joan, Humphrey's mother and Henry V's mother, she gifted all of the furnishings of her private chapel to Eleanor when they were first married. That sounds like a real honor. Yes, it was a huge honor. It was expensive and also was a important of a lady of her of Eleanor's standing to have a private chapel. And it wouldn't have been something she would have like had. So it's, it's interesting at this time you have Queen Joan, the Dowager Queen. Mm -hmm. You have Henry V's wife, who was also a Dowager Queen. And then you had Eleanor, who was acting as queen. It was really, England was, had all of these very powerful women 
who are kind of all filling this same role as a queen to the people. So I didn't read too much about all that. I think I think Queen Jo, I mean, she's pretty old at this point. She's kind of like, I'm going to go off on my house and just be happy. And you rule the kingdom. I don't know what happened to Henry V's wife. The difference is Henry V's wife, yes, she was a dowager queen. Her son was king, but like she married again. That's how we ended up with the Tudors. In terms of making decisions, she didn't have any power. Whereas the people, the common people, also appeared to love Eleanor and Humphrey. They were very popular. They um, were cultivating relationships with a local church, the local uh, university. Oh, wow. They were well-loved, and they were giving a lot. She was Order of the Garter. She was in the Order of the Garter? Yes, and she was actually very early in their marriage given that honor. Overall, they seemed well-loved, except by Cardinal Cardinal Beaufort and his allies. Yeah, it seems like this is just an idyllic time for them. What could go wrong? Cardinal Beaufort. He and Humphrey have been playing this power struggle for a while of who had power over the baby king. For a while, it was kind of divided. For a while, uh, Humphrey had pretty much taken Cardinal Beaufort out of the picture. Him and all of his allies were the ones in charge. Then the Earl of Suffolk came into the picture, and he started bringing in allies that were against Humphrey and more in line with Cardinal Beaufort. Now, if we remember in Shakespeare, Suffolk is one of the ones that are on Margaret of Anjou's side, the anti-Gloucester team. Now, again, Margaret of Anjou was not there. As Suffolk and his ilk start moving in, I believe because part of it was at this point that the king was starting to be able to make decisions. He was starting to come into his majority and not need Humphrey to rule. But Humphrey was still basically ruling. No, for now. By by all accounts, what's about to happen with Eleanor absolutely destroyed him. Oh, no. I mean, he really loved her. Yeah, I know. His enemies were smart. Suffolk and Beaufort moved slowly. They didn't go straight for Eleanor. First, they went after the doctor who we believe was their private physician. We don't have like clear, here's this piece of paper saying he was their private physician, but he was well known around court. He was clearly thought to be close to Eleanor, so it's within reason that he was their private physician. Okay. And they also went after a priest that she was extremely close with. Possibly under torture, these two men admitted that she had been using divination to learn of the king's death. Torture is notoriously unreliable. Yes, they didn't know that at the time. She was supposed to have used a woman, uh, Marjorie, the Witch of Eye. Marjorie had already been tried for witchcraft and apparently found not guilty. She wasn't executed, but she was a known witch. This was before the kind of witch fever took Europe. Yeah, the witch fever really was in like the 16, late 1500s, early 1600s. Could someone like Beaufort just grab a person off the street and be like, we're going to torture you because we want information? So I don't know exactly how they apprehended everybody. Um, I mean, yeah, Beaufort was pretty powerful, so was Suffolk. They were both in the upper echelons of ruling the kingdom. My guess is they were arrested under suspicion of maybe not witchcraft, but like they admitted and or were found guilty of being a part of this, of this using divination to 
determine the date of the king's death or how the king would die. Or, and that kind of stuff was treasonous. The kind of thought process behind that being that you would act on that information, especially if you're the heir to the throne. For reference, see Lady Macbeth. <laughs> you get, they got confessions out of them, whether they were reliable or not. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think they particularly needed them to be reliable. This was really to take down Eleanor and Humphrey. More Humphrey. They were after Humphrey. Eleanor was just the means to get to him. So Eleanor made a smarty McSmartpants move and went into sanctuary immediately. Immediately when she saw what was happening, went into sanctuary. Because then she could not be tried for treason. Good move. Because treason would have been handled by the king's court. However, witchcraft was handled by the ecclesiastical court, meaning the church tried it. Meaning Beaufort. Yes, among others. I don't think Beaufort necessarily oversaw her trial, but his buddies in the church did. But sanctuary did not apply to church crimes. Oh, no. So she stayed in Westminster for like a while, and then the church worked with Henry to say her sanctuary extends to this house that she's going to be in. So she was basically put under house arrest, and she couldn't leave it because they extended sanctuary to that, even though it wasn't a church sanctuary extended there and then henry honored that i mean by all accounts henry was also a very devout man and this is henry the sixth finally acting as king yeah like i said at this point he's coming out of his minority eleanor goes in the sanctuary eventually she faces the ecclesiastical court where she was officially accused of working with marjorie jordan the witch of eye what i found interesting was eleanor made a tactical move here some scholars think it is what condemned her in the book i read royal witches by um, Gemma holman she argues that it was possibly the best move she could have made she admitted to using love potions and fertility potions so she admitted to working with marjorie but for the purpose of getting the duke of gloucester to fall in love with her and then to help them conceive a child some people say this would have condemned her because she admitted to witchcraft. However, at the time, using kind of potions and charms like that weren't as frowned upon as they would be, you know, a couple hundred years later. Back then, people thought everything was magic, so using any magic wasn't the same as using witchcraft. Yes, and admitting to using it for these kind of innocuous means she wouldn't have suffered a severe punishment it's not doing a treason so she admitted to that and her you know her trial went on of course for a little while on november 9th she faced the judges the tribunal to learn her fate possibly the harshest punishment and most surprising was that her marriage was annulled oh no due to lack of consent how progressive I know, the Middle Ages were weirdly progressive on consent. I found this interesting because I was like, oh, really though? So because marriages at the time were often made between families to further both families' interests, people, young people, were often pressured into marriage. Okay. If the, a church court found that one, you know, bride or groom was unduly pressured unduly pressured into marriage that marriage would be annulled due to consent that's really interesting 
I, I like that. I know, right? Go medieval England. In this case, it was because she admitted to using love potions that they said, Humphrey did not give consent to marry you, and so your marriage is annulled. You, you see that? Mind-altering substances negate consent. Yeah. That was one of the harshest punishments she received. And one of the more surprising, because usually the church at all costs tried to keep marriages valid. You know, they didn't like just dismissing marriages all willy-nilly. Even today. Well, I mean, look at, look at what Henry VIII had to go through for a divorce. Yeah. She basically never saw Humphrey again. Oh, no. But they were so cute. I know. Oh, now I'm sad. You made me sad. You're mean. I'm sorry. She also had to walk penance, which meant that in three separate days, she had to walk through different parts of London. With a nun behind her yelling shame and ringing a bell. No. Dressed only in a chemise with no hood on her head. So she was basically just wearing underwear. Oh, so this is really close to Game of Thrones. Yeah. Holding a taper candle. What's a taper candle? Is that a candle made out of tapir? No. No. <laughs> you'd like that you'd see on like a table in a candlestick. So she was also exiled from court. I mean, at this point. Overall, she got off easy. I think besides the priest, I think the priest also was like exiled or something. Mm -hmm. But the doctor and Marjorie Jourdain were killed. Ooh, should have been noble. She would never be tried for treason. She would never be civilly tried. This was all in the ecclesiastical court. I don't know if it was just kind of like, I don't see the point now for Henry or what. Because Henry also, this was his aunt. Like, he grew up with her. Yeah. Like, he took his majority at, like, 16. They were married for 13 years. He was a toddler. Oh, wow. So this was the point where uh, Beaufort was making his play for power and Anne Suffolk by leading Henry VI through decisions. So it must have been hard for Henry, but he was also notoriously spineless. Yes, but he did never try, he never did try her for treason. I imagine there was no point for Beaufort and Suffolk's perspective. I mean, probably not, but also having your wife executed for treason doesn't look good. Uh, what if Humphrey made a deal with them to save her because their love was so pure? I don't know. I doubt it. Well, how, how did Humphrey fare in all this? Oh, he basically went back to his house and left court and never really made another play for power. So maybe he did make a romantic deal. I doubt it, dear. Listen, let my heart fly. Okay. So she was put in house arrest. Henry paid for everything because she no longer was due anything from the Duke of Gloucester. So she had no lands. She had nothing. Wow. So, and this also is an indication that Henry actually did like still have some care in his heart for her. Yeah. He paid for her escort to different places along to her final destination with a hefty armed guard so that she wouldn't be attacked or smuggled away. He also paid for her living expenses, which compared to what she used to have kind of sucked, but was still, I think it was 67 pounds a year, which like the average noble made like 40 pounds a year. So she still was, she was fine. She got a couple servants in her household, but then she lived at the home of whoever was watching her. Oh, okay. So she was basically just someone's house guest for the rest of her life. Yeah, but like she could never leave. I mean, she lived out her days in house arrest. So this couple came together, fell in love, created a wonderful court that 
celebrated art and music and poetry, read together, had a nice library, I'm assuming, then were torn apart and lived the rest of their lives sad. Pretty much. Like I said, this was this was the point where Humphrey stopped vying for power. And he's still good. The king was still young. The king was still malleable. He wasn't even married yet. I mean, Humphrey was still the heir to the throne. Humphrey could have manipulated that. But by all accounts, this just... Crushed him. Crushed him. He was done. Oh, wow. Now that we've gone over that, we'll talk a little bit about what happened in Shakespeare. Again, the big difference being that they really set up this rivalry between Eleanor and Margaret of Anjou. Which just never happened. The two of them never met. Eleanor was whisked away long before Margaret of Anjou got there. Like, I think she had been in captivity for, like, at least five years. Also, if I do remember, in Shakespeare, Eleanor was extremely crafty and ambitious. Yeah, I mean, she she almost read, like, a blueprint for Lady Macbeth later. And not only that, but to the Shakespearean odds, there was no doubt that she did it because there was a scene where she and the doctor and the priest and the witch of eye summoned a demon. <laughs> there was no, maybe she was, maybe it was a power play. It was like, no, we watched her summon a demon. She definitely did it. Yeah, usually when I see people summon a demon, I think, oh, they're in cahoots with demons. And then one thing that I suppose could have happened, but probably didn't, was that last interaction she has with Humphrey. In the play, Humphrey comes up right before she's about to walk her penance and like talks to her. I doubt that happened. I doubt they were allowed to. But besides that, I mean, happened pretty much how it happened. Well, I think they were all arrested at once, which again, Shakespeare sped up a timeline. What? Who would have guessed? It's very interesting to me that Henry continued to pay for her till the end of her days. It shows how manipulated he was at the time. Like, and also that he probably believed she did it on, to, on some level. He, he did everything that Beaufort and Somerset wanted, even though he cared deeply for her. And it kind of shows how weak he was as a king, how easily manipulated. And, you know, that would hold for the rest of his reign. Realistically, he, he probably could have stopped it at any point. Yeah, by having a spine. Since we were coming up on the anniversary of her downfall, thought it would be a nice time to talk about dear Eleanor of Cobham. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP40 for even more information on Eleanor Cobham. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.